The people at the end of the line who are flipping NFTs do not fundamentally care about distributed trust models or payment mechanics, but they care about where the money is. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, the best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We got a fun one today. Um, I uh, I wanted this to be a follow-up to the conversation we had with John Carvalho because, uh, you know, will the real Web3 please stand up? I think the model that we talked about, the idea of what he's trying to build with Synonym um, is the correct approach. It is, I think the proper way to at least assess what needs to be fixed and making sure that, um, you know, there's a, there's a law in the Lessons of BitTorrent series by uh, Simon Morris, a really, really great one where he just, um, I mean, he worked with BitTorrent, um, but in, in breaking down the history of BitTorrent and why it worked as a decentralized system and where it failed as a decentralized system, what did and didn't work and what lessons we could draw from that. And one of the things that's, one of the lessons that stuck with me so well was minimum viable decentralization. Decentralize uh, the most important element and let a market build on top of that. Let essentially services and providers take care of the rest of it and only where there's some critical vulnerability or where there's something that's so important that we cannot leave it up to trust, i.e. the money, um, that uh, make sure that that is decentralized and then you can actually solve for all of these trust problems and uh, corruption problems essentially downstream because you've got the most important one in the bag, essentially. You know, it's much like Greg Maxwell talked about um, uh, back down, uh, back during the block size wars, uh, essentially is, uh, and something I harped on a lot was that you can build a, uh, you can build a centralized system on top of something decentralized, and you can build a decentralized system on top of something decentralized, but you cannot build a decentralized system network protocol on top of something centralized. Whatever your base layer decentralization is, is the, is the best you're ever going to get. You can't go one layer up and get more decentralization and more security if at the end of the day you're still reliant on this other. So in that context, let's read an article from Moxie Marlinspike titled, My First Impressions of Web3. So what is the crypto web three? What are NFTs? What is this whole ecosystem exactly? And how does it apply? Is it the right engineering approach? Is, is it the right, is, is it people truly caring about decentralization and distributed consensus and 100% verification and sovereignty and all of these things? Or is it something else entirely? And a little spoiler, 
Uh, it's worse than I thought it was, and I thought it was pretty bad. So uh, with that, we'll get into it in just a second. I just want to thank our amazing sponsors. Uh, we'll start with the Fold Card. Um, uh, Fold Card is the debit card for earning sats back on everything in life. Literally rewards on everything you do. I got rewards for going out to dinner tonight. It was pretty special. I'm very stoked about it. Then you're going to keep those precious, precious sats in your BitBox. Because your BitBox hardware wallet is where you're going to keep it safe. That is where you get your sovereignty. And uh, you're going to want to automate those, that sat stacking with Swan Bitcoin. Because that's how you don't get caught up in the trades. That's how you don't get caught up in wasting your life looking at candlestick charts. Because that's a waste of time. Do something meaningful. Stack sats automatically with Swan. And then you're going to come hang out with me and everybody else at Bitcoin 2022. Because it's going to be fucking amazing. It's going to be a great time. And you're going to love it. And you're going to get 10% off with code GUYSWAN. Do all of those things. Check out the show notes where you have links and discounts to all that fun stuff. And, uh, and then you'll be, a, you'll be a good Bitcoiner. You'll be a good audionaut. <laughs> all right. With that, it's time to get into today's piece by Moxie Marlinspike. And it is titled, My First Impressions of Web3 by Moxie Marlinspike. Despite considering myself a cryptographer, I have not found myself particularly drawn to, quote, crypto. I don't think I've ever actually said the words, get off my lawn, but I'm much more likely to click on Pepperidge Farm Remembers flavored memes about how crypto used to mean cryptography than I am the latest NFT drop. Also, cards on the table here, I don't share the same generational excitement for moving all aspects of life into an instrumented economy. Even strictly on the technological level, though, I haven't yet managed to become a believer. So given all of the recent attention into what is now being called Web3, I decided to explore some of what has been happening in that space more thoroughly to see what I may be missing. How I think about 1 and 2. Web 3 is a somewhat ambiguous term, which makes it difficult to rigorously evaluate what the ambitions for Web 3 should be. But the general thesis seems to be that Web 1 was decentralized, Web 2 centralized everything into platforms, and that Web 3 will decentralize everything again. Web 3 should give us the richness of Web 2, but decentralized. It's probably good to have some clarity on why centralized platforms emerged to begin with, and in my mind, the explanation is pretty simple. 1. People don't want to run their own servers and never will. The premise for Web 1 was that everyone on the internet would be both a publisher and consumer of content, as well as a publisher and consumer of infrastructure. We'd all have our own web server with our own website, our own mail server for our own email, our own finger server for our own status messages, our own charge-in server for our own character generation. However, and I don't think this can be emphasized enough, this is not what people want. People do not want to run their own servers. Even nerds do not want to run their own servers at this point. Even organizations building software full-time do not want to run their own servers at this point. If there's one thing I hope we've learned about the world, it's that people do not want to run their own servers. 
The companies that emerged offering to do that for you instead were successful, and the companies that iterated on new functionality based on what is possible with those networks were even more successful. Two, a protocol moves much more slowly than a platform. After 30 plus years, email is still unencrypted. Meanwhile, WhatsApp went from unencrypted to full end-to-end -end encrypted in a year. People are still trying to standardize sharing a video reliably over IRC. Meanwhile, Slack lets you create custom reaction emoji based on your face. This isn't a funding issue. If something is truly decentralized, it becomes very difficult to change and often remains stuck in time. That is a problem for technology because the rest of the ecosystem is moving very quickly, and if you don't keep up, you will fail. There are entire parallel industries focused on defining and improving methodologies like Agile to try to figure out how to organize enormous groups of people so that they can move as quickly as possible because it is so critical. When the technology itself is more conducive to stasis than movement, that's a problem. A sure recipe for success has been to take a 90s protocol that was stuck in time, centralize it, and iterate quickly. But Web3 intends to be different, so let's take a look. In order to get a quick feeling for the space and a better understanding for what the future may hold, I decided to build a couple of dApps and create an NFT. Making some distributed apps. To get a feeling for the Web3 world, I made a dApp called Autonomous Art that lets anyone mint a token for an NFT by making a visual contribution to it. The cost of making a visual contribution increases over time, and the funds a contributor pays to mint are distributed to all previous artists. Visualizing this financial structure would resemble something similar to a pyramid shape. At the time of this writing, over 38,000 US dollars has gone into creating this collective art piece. I also made a dApp called First Derivative that allows you to create, discover, and exchange NFT derivatives which track an underlying NFT, similar to financial derivatives which track an underlying asset. Wink. Both gave me a feeling for how the space works. To be clear, there is nothing particularly distributed about the apps themselves. They're just normal React websites. The distributedness refers to where the state and the logic and permissions for updating the state lives, on the blockchain instead of a centralized database. One thing that has always felt strange to me about the cryptocurrency world is the lack of attention to the client-server interface. When people talk about blockchains, they talk about distributed trust, leaderless consensus, and all the mechanics of how that works, but often gloss over the reality that clients ultimately can't participate in those mechanics. All the network diagrams are of servers. The trust model is between servers. Everything is about servers. Blockchains are designed to be a network of peers but not designed such that it's really possible for your mobile device or your browser to be one of those peers. With the shift to mobile, we now live firmly in a world of clients and servers, 
with the former completely unable to act as the latter. And those questions seem more important to me than ever. Meanwhile, Ethereum actually refers to servers as, quote, clients. So there's not even a word for an actual untrusted client-server interface that will have to exist somewhere. And no acknowledgement that if successful, there will ultimately be billions more clients than servers. For example, whether it's running on mobile or the web, a dApp like Autonomous Art or First Derivative needs to interact with the blockchain somehow in order to modify or render state, the collectively produced work of art, the edit history for it, the NFT derivatives, etc. That's not really possible to do from the client though, since the blockchain can't live on your mobile device or in your desktop browser realistically. So the only alternative is to interact with the blockchain via a node that's running remotely on a server somewhere. A server. But as we know, people don't want to run their own servers. As it happens, companies have emerged that sell API access to an Ethereum node they run as a service, along with providing analytics, enhanced APIs they've built on top of the default Ethereum APIs, and access to historical transactions. Which sounds... familiar. At this point, there are basically two companies. Almost all dApps use either Infura or Alchemy in order to interact with the blockchain. In fact, even when you connect a wallet like MetaMask to a dApp and the dApp interacts with the blockchain via your wallet, MetaMask is just making calls to Infura. These client APIs are not using anything to verify blockchain state or the authenticity of responses. The results aren't even signed. An app like Autonomous Art says, hey, what's the output of this view function on this smart contract? Alchemy or Infura responds with a JSON blob that says, this is the output, and the app renders it. This was surprising to me. So much work, energy, and time has gone into creating a trustless distributed consensus mechanism but virtually all clients that wish to access it do so by simply trusting the outputs from these two companies without any further verification. It also doesn't seem like the best privacy situation. Imagine if every time you interacted with a website in Chrome, your request first went to Google before being routed to the destination and back. That is the situation with Ethereum today. All write traffic is obviously already public on the blockchain, but these companies also have visibility into almost all read requests from almost all users in almost all dApps. Partisans of the blockchain might say that it's okay if these types of centralized platforms emerge because the state itself is available on the blockchain. So if these platforms misbehave, clients can simply move elsewhere. However, I would suggest that this is a very simplistic view of the dynamics that make platforms what they are. Let me give you an example. Making an NFT. I also wanted to create a more traditional NFT. Most people think of images and digital art when they think of NFTs, but NFTs generally do not store that data on chain. 
For most NFTs of most images, that would be much too expensive. So instead of storing the data on-chain, NFTs instead contain a URL that points to the data. What surprised me about the standards was that there's no hash commitment for the data located at the URL. Looking at many of the NFTs on popular marketplaces being sold for tens, hundreds, or millions of dollars, that URL often just points to some VPS running Apache somewhere. Anyone with access to that machine, anyone who buys that domain name in the future, or anyone who compromises that machine can change the image, title, description, etc. for the NFT to whatever they'd like at any time, regardless of whether or not they own the token. There's nothing in the NFT spec that tells you what the image should be, or even allows you to confirm whether something is the quote, correct image. So, as an experiment, I made an NFT that changes based on who is looking at it. Since the web server that serves the image can choose to serve different images based on the IP or user agent of the requester. For example, it looked one way on OpenSea, another way on Rarible, but when you buy it and view it from your crypto wallet, it will always display as a large shit emoji. What you bid on isn't what you get. There's nothing unusual about this NFT. It's how the NFT specifications are built. Many of the highest-priced NFTs could turn into a shit emoji at any time. I just made it explicit. After a few days without warning or explanation, the NFT I made was removed from OpenSea, an NFT marketplace. Quote, The item you tried to visit is no longer available on OpenSea. It will not be visible or accessible to anyone browsing the marketplace. To learn more about why the item you tried to visit is no longer available on OpenSea, read our Help Center guide on this topic. If you have questions or concerns regarding this action, contact the OpenSea team here. The takedown suggests that I violated some term of service. But after reading the terms, I don't see any that prohibit an NFT which changes based on where it is being looked at from. And I was openly describing it that way. What I found most interesting, though, is that after OpenSea removed my NFT, it also no longer appeared in any crypto wallet on my device. This is Web3, though. How is that possible? A crypto wallet like MetaMask, Rainbow, etc. is, quote, non-custodial. The keys are kept client-side. But it has the same problem as my dApps above. A wallet has to run on a mobile device or in your browser. Meanwhile, Ethereum and other blockchains have been designed with the idea that it's a network of peers, but not designed such that it's really possible for your mobile device or your browser to be one of those peers. A wallet like MetaMask needs to do basic things like display your balance, your recent transactions, and your NFTs, as well as more complex things like constructing transactions, interacting with smart contracts, etc. In short, MetaMask needs to interact with the blockchain. But the blockchain has been built such that clients like MetaMask can't interact with it. So like my dApp, 
MetaMask accomplishes this by making API calls to three companies that have consolidated in this space. For instance, MetaMask displays your recent transactions by making an API call to Etherscan, displays your account balance by making an API call to Infura, displays your NFTs by making an API call to OpenSea. Again, like with my dApp, these responses are not authenticated in some way. They're not even signed so that you could later prove they were lying. It reuses the same connections, TLS session tickets, etc. for all the accounts in your wallet. So if you're managing multiple accounts in your wallet to maintain some identity separation, these companies know they're linked. MetaMask doesn't actually do much. It's just a view into data provided by these centralized APIs. This isn't a problem specific to MetaMask. What other option do they have? Rainbow, etc. are set up in exactly the same way. Interestingly, Rainbow has their own data for the social features they're building into their wallet, social graph, showcases, etc., and have chosen to build all of that on top of Firebase instead of the blockchain. All this means that if your NFT is removed from OpenSea, it also disappears from your wallet. It doesn't functionally matter that my NFT is indelibly on the blockchain somewhere because the wallet, and increasingly everything else in the ecosystem, is just using the OpenSea API to display NFTs, which began returning 304 no content for the query of NFTs owned by my address. Recreating this world. Given the history of why Web 1 became Web 2, what seems strange to me about Web 3 is that technologies like Ethereum have been built with many of the same implicit trappings as Web 1. To make these technologies usable, the space is consolidating around platforms. Again, people who will run servers for you and iterate on the new functionality that emerges. Infura, OpenSea, Coinbase, Etherscan. Likewise, the Web3 protocols are slow to evolve. When building first derivative, it would have been great to price minting derivatives as a percentage of the underlying's value. That data isn't on-chain, but it's in an API that OpenSea will give you. People are excited about NFT royalties for the way that they can benefit creators, but royalties aren't specified in ERC-721, and it's too late to change that. So, OpenSea has its own way of configuring royalties that exists in Web2 space. Iterating quickly on centralized platforms is already outpacing the distributed protocols and consolidating control into platforms. Given those dynamics, I don't think it should be a surprise that we are already at a place where your crypto wallet's view of your NFTs is OpenSea's view of your NFTs. I don't think we should be surprised that OpenSea isn't a pure view that can be replaced since it has been busy iterating the platform beyond what is possible strictly with the impossible-slash-difficult-to-change standards. I think this is very similar to the situation with email. 
I can run my own mail server, but it doesn't functionally matter for privacy, censorship resistance, or control, because Gmail is going to be on the other end of every email that I send or receive anyway. Once a distributed ecosystem centralizes around a platform for convenience, it becomes the worst of both worlds. Centralized control, but still distributed enough to become mired in time. I can build my own NFT marketplace, but it doesn't offer any additional control if OpenSea mediates the view of all NFTs in the wallets that people use, and every other app in the ecosystem. This isn't a complaint about OpenSea, or an indictment of what they've built. Just the opposite, they're trying to build something that works. I think we should expect this kind of platform consolidation to happen, and given the inevitability, design systems that give us what we want when that's how things are organized. My sense and concern, though, is that the Web3 community expects some other outcome than what we're already seeing. It's early days. It's early days still is the most common refrain I see from people in the Web3 space when discussing matters like these. In some ways, cryptocurrency's failure to scale beyond relatively nascent engineering is what makes it possible to consider the days, quote, early, since objectively, it has already been a decade or more. However, even if this is just the beginning, and it very well might be, I'm not sure we should consider that any consolation. I think the opposite might be true. It seems like we should take notice that from the very beginning, these technologies immediately tended towards centralization through platforms in order for them to be realized. That this has roughly zero negatively felt effect on the velocity of the ecosystem, and that most participants don't even know or care it's happening. This might suggest that decentralization itself is not actually of immediate practical or pressing importance to the majority of people downstream, that the only amount of decentralization people want is the minimum amount required for something to exist, and that if not very consciously accounted for, these forces will push us further from, rather than closer to, the ideal outcome as the days become less early. But you can't stop a gold rush. When you think about it, OpenSea would actually be much, quote, better in the immediate sense if all the Web3 parts were gone. It would be faster, cheaper for everyone, and easier to use. For example, to accept a bid on my NFT, I would have had to pay over $80 to $150 just in Ethereum transaction fees. That puts an artificial floor on all bids, since otherwise you'd lose money by accepting a bid for less than the gas fees. Payment fees by credit card, which typically feel extortionary, look cheap compared to that. OpenSea could even publish a simple transparency log if people wanted a public record of transactions, offers, bids, etc. to verify their accounting. However, if they had built a platform to buy and sell images that wasn't nominally based on crypto, I don't think it would have taken off. Not because it isn't distributed, because as we've seen, so much of what's required to make it work is already not distributed. I don't think it would have taken off because this is a gold rush. 
people have made money through cryptocurrency speculation. Those people are interested in spending that cryptocurrency in ways that support their investment while offering additional returns. And so that defines the setting for the market of transfer of wealth. The people at the end of the line who are flipping NFTs do not fundamentally care about distributed trust models or payment mechanics, but they care about where the money is. So the money draws people into OpenSea. They improve the experience by building a platform that iterates on the underlying Web3 protocols in Web2 space. They eventually offer the ability to mint NFTs through OpenSea itself instead of through your own smart contract. And eventually this all opens the door for Coinbase to offer access to the validated NFT market with their own platform via your debit card. That opens the door to Coinbase managing the tokens themselves through dark pools that Coinbase holds, which helpfully eliminates the transaction fees and makes it possible to avoid having to interact with smart contracts at all. Eventually, all the Web3 parts are gone, and you have a website for buying and selling JPEGs with your debit card. The project can't start as a Web2 platform because of the market dynamics, but the same market dynamics and the fundamental forces of centralization will likely drive it to end up there. At the end of the stack, NFT artists are excited about this kind of progression because it means more speculation and investment in their art. But it also seems like if the point of Web3 is to avoid the trappings of Web2, we should be concerned that this is already the natural tendency for these protocols that are supposed to offer a different future. I think these market forces will likely continue. And in my mind, the question of how long it continues is a question of whether the vast amounts of accumulated cryptocurrency are ultimately inside an engine or a leaky bucket. If the money flowing through NFTs ends up channeled back into crypto space, it can continue to accelerate forever, regardless of whether or not it's just web two times two. If it churns out, then this will be a blip. Personally, I think enough money has been made at this point that there are enough faucets to keep it going, and this won't be just a blip. If that's the case, it seems worth thinking about how to avoid Web3 being Web2 times 2. Web2, but with even less privacy. With some urgency. Creativity might not be enough. I have only dipped my toe in the waters of Web3. Looking at it through the lens of these small projects, though, I can easily see why so many people find the Web3 ecosystem so neat. I don't think it's on a trajectory to deliver us from centralized platforms. I don't think it will fundamentally change our relationship to technology. And I think the privacy story is already below par for the internet, which is a pretty low bar. But I understand why nerds like me are excited to build for it. It is, at the very least, something new on the nerd level. And that creates a space for creativity and exploration that is somewhat reminiscent of early internet days. Ironically, part of that creativity probably springs from the constraints that make Web3 so clunky. I'm hopeful that the creativity and exploration we're seeing will have positive outcomes, but I'm not sure if it's enough to prevent all the same dynamics of the internet from unfolding again.
If we do want to change our relationship to technology, I think we'd have to do it intentionally. My basic thoughts are roughly, one, we should accept the premise that people will not run their own servers by designing systems that can distribute trust without having to distribute infrastructure. This means architecture that anticipates and accepts the inevitable outcome of relatively centralized client-server relationships, but uses cryptography rather than infrastructure to distribute trust. One of the surprising things to me about Web3, despite being built on, quote, crypto, is how little cryptography seems to be involved. And two, we should try to reduce the burden of building software. At this point, software projects require an enormous amount of human effort. Even relatively simple apps require a group of people to sit in front of a computer for eight hours a day, every day, forever. This wasn't always the case, and there was a time when 50 people working on a software project wasn't considered a, quote, small team. As long as software requires such concerted energy and so much highly specialized human focus, I think it will have the tendency to serve the interest of the people sitting in that room every day, rather than what we may consider our broader goals. I think changing our relationship to technology will probably require making software easier to create. But in my lifetime, I've seen the opposite come to pass. Unfortunately, I think distributed systems have a tendency to exacerbate this trend by making things more complicated and more difficult, not less complicated and less difficult. Good morning. And that is Moxie Marlin Spikes, my first impressions of Web3. Let's take a quick break and hit our sponsor. And I definitely am going to be, I'm going to have to have a guy's take on this one. We'll be back in just a second. All right. Are you guys holding your own keys yet? Do you actually own your Bitcoin or is somebody else holding them on your behalf? Are you still trusting some service or institution to keep your money safe, even though you know they don't really care, even though you know they could lose it, even though you, you're still leaving it on an exchange, your precious, precious sats, even though you know it's, I know it's a little bit uncomfortable the first time you do a hardware wallet, but you know it's going to be easy with the BitBox. You do. You do. You're just procrastinating. I know that feeling. I do it all the freaking time. But that is the best thing about the BitBox. Or at least that's what I found from uh, a bunch of the listeners, a bunch of you guys who have actually taken the plunge, gotten one, and then talked to me about it and, you know, let me know your experience is that, and that's, this is what mine was. This is what I loved about the device is it's just easy to use and set up. They've really done a remarkable job at removing most of the the human error in the process and make it intuitive. Also, I actually just two days ago, three days ago, I actually wiped my BitBox just to see, um, just to restore it from the little SD card that they have. And I was actually kind of amazed. It was shockingly easy. Uh, it was basically as simple as the backup process, like backing it up on the SD card. It was plugging in, restore, and there we go. It was, <laughs> it came back. So I'm just 
continually impressed by this device and that is why I recommend it. That's why they've been a sponsor to the show and uh, I love working with them. You just got to check it out if you haven't. And the guys over at Shift Crypto have a 5% discount for the audio knots for everything in your cart actually by using code GUY. That is three letters, G-U-I. Three letters for 5% off. That is 1.67% per letter. That is a solid letter to discount ratio. I got to admit, you go to guyswan.com slash bitbox, takes you directly over there. Link in the show notes for the lazy people like myself. Now let's get back to the hilarity of Web3. Man, I thought NFTs were bad before this. <laughs> this article, man. So Moxie, I wanted this to follow up um, yesterday's conversation with John Carvalho because um, there was something that Moxie brought up in this piece that I thought was uh, kind of hilarious, but also at the same time, so true. Um, just that like how little quote unquote cryptography is involved with any of this stuff, how little the idea of verification of provenance, like that th it just doesn't even seem to matter. Um, and there's so much like just kind of nuance that he talks about in this piece. And he's really apologetic. He does a good job of, um, uh, I mean, just, just for, uh, the sake of, uh, uh, foundation here. So Moxie Marlin Spike is uh, built the Signal app um, and has been working on that. He's also longtime cypherpunk and privacy advocate. Um, they do have a uh, a money raising, like a VC raising shitcoin that they did with Signal. Um, so he's not like totally away from this, but I imagine just from reading uh, this and like a couple of other his things, just kind of uh, light exploring. I get the feeling that it doesn't, that that wasn't seeming to be like some big thing that was going to be a part of this. It was just a way to raise money. And he even kind of calls out that that's basically what this space is about, is that everybody's just going where the money is. And in the context of, uh, like there's, there's a whole section in this talking about how like all of this could be built completely centralized. All of this could just be put on the platform, and he talks about the progression of how it's basically going to end up there. That's that's essentially where it is. But that if you didn't have the foundation of saying, this thing is on a blockchain, then you couldn't sell it. You couldn't sell the JPEG. There's not a real market for it. Or at least there wasn't one before suddenly it was a non-fungible token. It was some supposedly new thing and that's where all the crypto money went. Everybody who'd made a whole lot of money on crypto and gambling on shit coins or whatever is now just trying to turn their money around and figure out where the next thing that they can make some money on is. And so they run to the NFTs. They run to blockchain this and DAO that and DApps and DeFi and all the rest. And it all seems to have as much a foundation as this did, which seems like not really much of a foundation at all. I mean, you know, when I've argued in the past on Twitter and with in Telegram, all, all the people that I've argued with NFTs about, and there's an element of NFTs that I've constantly, I've tried to uh, continually found my argument from, is that obviously some sort of collectible 
There, there's an argument for collectibles. There's an argument for baseball cards, for Pokemon cards, for Dungeons and Dragons like decks, and like you know, you know, like there's there's an element of that, in, particularly in gaming and all of these other things. Obviously, collectibles exist. There is some sort of a market for it. Why wouldn't it also exist in the digital realm? Sure, okay, but what about the non, the quote-unquote non-fungible token adds any value to that, uh, gives any additional, uh, what's the term, um, I guess verification of, uh, it's, it's not even verification, gives any better use case for it, makes it more valuable for what it does. And I genuinely think the entire NFT market is born on the idea of false novelty, that this is somehow special. And even when I thought it was just, see, see this is funny because this is, a, this is an element of me not verifying. So when there's only so far you can dig into shitcoins before you're just spending hours and hours and days and days trying to verify something that you know is already subpar or basically not worth your time. So, uh, Basically, my, my excuse essentially to dig further into these things when I get to the point where naturally I would just stop and I'd be like, well, we're not going to do an episode of Bitcoin Audible about this because this doesn't interest me anymore, is, uh, is Shitcoin Insider, right? That's kind of what I did with the show. And it's also why the show doesn't have a crap ton of episodes because sometimes I'm just exhausted with reading all of this stuff. But because um, it seems just like an endless hole of this, of this, of like fake decentralization of pretend decentralization for a facade behind just an API or on, stuck on top of an API. And like Moxie says in this piece is that it doesn't seem like anybody in the space really cares about decentralization outside of the fact that it's a marketing tactic where I can say X coin is better than Y coin because it's more decentralized. It's just it's just for argument's sake. It's just like a, a sense of virtue signaling for mine's worth more because of decentralized, because of blockchain, because of whatever the next hype thing is at the time. And of course, there is this inherent, the more decentralized it is, the better, when there are so many things built on top of this that don't make sense even in the context of decentralization. A good example would be something like gaming tokens or baseball cards or something, the, the very thing that I think NFTs might even have some sort of a market for is that why, why if it's only redeemable at a central thing, you know, if I've got a sword for World of Warcraft, I'm not going to, it's, it's just for World of Warcraft. It is the World of Warcraft servers and the game developers who decide whether or not that sword's worth anything. If, the game sucks. It's not cool just because I have a sword that I can take out of the game. It's not a sword unless it's in the game. It's part of that game, which necessarily means it's centralized. It's trying to. It's like trying to put equity on the blockchain and then call it decentralized when it's still equity in a centralized company. Like obviously, it is still can only be redeemed or only has any value at all because of this central group of people, because of a company. It's equity. You don't, there's no reason for something that 
is inherently and fundamentally centralized to be stuck on a decentralized blockchain because you, it doesn't do anything except make it expensive and slower. You still have to go to the company for A, it to be valuable at all, or B, to redeem it for anything. This is why so many times, you know, we talked about Alex Fetsky's pieces on this show. He does such a good job of the blockchain is dead series thing that he does. Um, uh, really great piece. I think that was in like the first Bitcoin Times edition, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, I'll try to I'll try to remember to put that in the show notes, actually. But uh, he talks about how and we talked about this from so many different perspectives on the show, but that you can't put something. There's no verification there's no provenance, there's no extra security for putting something on the blockchain that wasn't created within the rules of the blockchain. The second there is human input into it, you are trusting that human. You are trusting, you still have all the errors, you have all the corruption, you have all the mistakes of the human input model, of the trusted model. You've just then now put it on a blockchain so that you can. I don't know, do what with it? And then you look at NFTs. So when I was digging, the whole point of this, the previous little tangent here is that when I was digging into NFTs, I was told in my exploration without deeply verifying it, without like, I didn't like break out code and try to read the spec or uh, read the actual code that was involved in this. I simply went asking for people to explain to me how NFTs worked. And I still came up to came to the conclusion that it seemed empty, that it seemed like mostly thin air being sold as something novel. But even then, I was at least under the complete impression that there was a signature and there was a hash of the product, the, the, of the JPEG that was being purchased and a signature of the author, of the, the, the artist. And that that's what you were purchasing, that that was the value. Because, and even the examples that I would give trying to steal man NFT a little bit for myself and when I would try to argue with people is that, you know, a poster uh, might be worth X amount, but I would definitely say a poster signed by a famous artist or um, signed by an actor or whatever it is, is worth X plus something else. Like it's more valuable. So why wouldn't that work in something like an NFT? Why couldn't there be a digital version of that? Sure, maybe there's some corner of a market. Who knows? I completely leave myself open to the fact that that is a real thing. Why wouldn't the digital version also exist? Come to find out in this article that that isn't even there. It's just a URL. It's just a URL. I don't even understand how at that point you can call it a non-fungible token if that's all it's pointing to. And specifically if it's pointing to that because of the degree of cost of adding too much data into it, which is kind of hilarious because that's been the criticism, that's been the argument for Bitcoiners since the very beginning of this is that it doesn't make sense to put it in the base layer. If you want to use cryptography, do it like John Carvalho is talking about. Use the decentralization by allowing you to tether things to the value, to the actual money. You know, you can do this on Lightning without being on chain. And it should have been obvious 
to everyone, to anybody who really looked into it, that this was not going to scale like this. That there was no fundamentally in, like sound engineering path here. And now you got Vitalik talking in interviews about how like, what was it, 70 terabytes a year isn't that big? Isn't too much? Like, that's a joke. You know, my, Moxie talks, like begins the piece talking about a fundamental truth. Nobody wants to run a server. And that is absolutely true. If you look at it in any sense of the word, or in any sense of the market and looking at the technology, look at the progressions of the internet, all of this stuff, nobody wants to run a server. I do, and I don't want to. Running a server is a pain in the ass. Managing that stuff is annoying. It's a lot of work. The beauty of Bitcoin is that I can get the added value, the added security and privacy for myself, and it takes almost no work. It's been made to be as little resource-intensive as engineeringly possible, I guess. I don't even know if that's an adverb really works there, but you get what I'm saying, that in the context of designing the system, that the whole goal of Bitcoin was to create it such that even though we know people don't want to run servers, how can we get as many people as possible to run full nodes? And to not take that for granted, that what we want it is for it to get easier, for it to get easier and better with time. Because otherwise we've lost it. We've lost what makes this thing valuable in the first place. We've lost what makes it an independent money. And everything else is downstream from that. If you don't have independent money, you don't have independent anything else put on top of it. Like that's the end game. Like that's, that is the beginning and the end of everything that can be valuable and secured in this system. Because if your token isn't decentralized and independent, then it's not going to maintain value over the long term. And if it doesn't maintain value, then it doesn't, it doesn't actually provide any security. If it's not actually sound money, if it can be manipulated, then of course it doesn't have any security. It's just at the whim of whichever developer or head of the foundation or whatever shit it is for the two centralized groups or the one giant AWS server that manages all the read and writes for the everybody in the damn ecosystem. Because why? Because nobody wants to run a damn server. The entire model only works because people are participating in the consensus that people are verifying and the idea the i knew metamask was basically like this but maybe it's just the way that he put it in this article that just made me realize how absurd it really was um but like here here's a one of the quotes actually i pulled from it says again so he made two daps right he made um uh or yeah, yeah, yeah. Autonomous art, which he uh, characterized was like a pyramid. Wink, wink. He literally just made a very, very simple pyramid scheme uh, for putting something on a piece of artwork. I went and checked it out. Artwork looks like shit. Um, like, uh, I mean, no offense. I don't know who I'd be offending. It's just like a bunch of random people paying money to make a manipulation to this artwork. So I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how it doesn't look like it looks like um but, but then he also uh did the derivatives things what was the first derivatives I, I can't even remember what it's called anyway here's the quote again just like my uh like with my dap these responses are not authenticated in some way 
They're not even signed so that you could later prove that they were lying. It reuses the same connections, TLS session tickets, etc. for all the accounts in your wallet. So if you're managing multiple accounts in your wallet to maintain some identity separation, these companies know they're linked. This is another great example of the facade of basically virtue signaling the cypherpunk ideal while essentially throwing it away before you even get started. Um, you, you know, like the public blockchain is not desirable in the sense that wouldn't it be great if we had all transactions public so that you could analyze it forever into the future? That is not why we have a public blockchain. This is why I actually like the um, uh, the model or the way of thinking about it that the blockchain is actually a waste product. It's it's more like a an exhaust. It's simply necessary. It's simply that we do not know of another way that we can all participate in the verification as thoroughly as possible such that I can identify and verify for myself from top to bottom that I am on the correct consensus and that nobody can or has cheated me and I get some benefit of privacy and the fact that I am uh, making calls to my own computer. I am my own server uh, just because it's easy enough that I can just start a piece of software and then the things connect. Umbral, Embassy, these things have been wonderful for that. And it's still niche, you know, it's still only like, what, 50,000, 60,000 nodes or whatever on the Bitcoin network. That's certainly not all Bitcoiners. Um, and the best we can do is hope for a contingent of people who care enough and, uh, and that the actual running, the resource costs of the node and the implementation uh, of actually running it, of actually maintaining it, is easy enough and little enough of a cost that as many people do it as possible. But that in this context, like MetaMask, is the idea is like, oh, a bunch of Ethereum people hold their keys because they use MetaMask. Yes, but they verify nothing. They authenticate nothing with that. And I can't believe like the API calls to Infura, to OpenSea, that they're not even, they're not even signed. So you can't even prove, you can't even say later on that like, no, they sent me this message. Here it is signed with their private key. Look, check their public key. They absolutely lied. You can't even take that anywhere and use it for anything because it's meaningless. You just accepted a plain text. You made a normal internet request to them and they just responded with a message and you just blindly trusted whatever the fuck they sent to you. Why did you bother putting that shit on a blockchain? Use Google. Use Google. It's A, it's going to work a whole lot better. B, it's free. Doesn't cost $80, $100, $150 fees. They'll just deliver it right to you. Gmail is free. And I just can't, it's, it's hilarious too that the API, like <laughs> the API calls. All right. So when you're constantly sending messages to Infura, you're using the exact same TLS session tickets. And whenever you make a read request for anything, you're not even requesting like nodes on the network. Your wallet by default goes straight to the 
It's just an API request to Infura, and Infura knows everybody in every wallet, and every time you request anything to find out about an address or something. And going back to the idea of what's like the use case of NFTs, there's another section here that he talks about how NFT royalties is how to split up um, payments and be able to, uh, you know, get paid ongoing, like down the road, you know, because you made this thing uh, and that there's, you know, something, something there. Like, are, 100%, that could absolutely benefit creators. You know, if an artist can actually manage some point, some, some, uh, Similar context to the royalty system, to the copyright system, but do so in a more decentralized fashion, in a, in a sense where the creator themselves really has control rather than hoping for enforcement or for some record label to buy them and then, you know, they get 3% while record label, the record label takes like 80%. You, you know how awful those contracts and deals are. And that's the only sense, that's the only time in, the, in which they actually get that sort of protection or that constant royalty. To be able to fix that system, that's a great dream. That's a great goal to be aiming for. But as he says, protocols are slow. Protocols are very, very slow. And when you're moving fast and breaking things, when you're rushing to get things as fast as possible because you're just chasing the hype and you're just chasing the money, you're not worried about actually solving a problem. You're just worried about making something work as fast as it can and keep it stuck to the blockchain idea or the blockchain marketing so that it's worth more than if you just sold JPEGs for a debit card on a website, even though that's pretty much what you are because you're selling it, quote unquote, on a blockchain that directs you to a URL where it goes to a website, which you paid for with your debit card. And if somebody else gets that URL or somebody else takes over that server, what's wrong? Where's your NFT? It's gone. It's nowhere. It doesn't mean anything. It's to a URL that's got nothing to do with it anymore. You know, people repurpose URLs. I bought a URL that was once unavailable and now it was available. And so I bought it. Someone else used to own it. Now I do. Or do you think OpenSea is always going to be there? That that URL is always going to point to the same place? I've let some expire. It happens all the time. Imagine... The website goes down and you own nothing. Or the website owner just decides to point it somewhere else, just like Moxie did. Uh, that, and that is just a fucking hilarious story. Absolutely hilarious. The idea that he created uh, some NFTs that showed up different on Rarible versus OpenSea. And then when you actually, because it's just a, <laughs> it's just a URL call, so he can point it wherever the hell he wants. And... How easy was it to prove that case? We're, we're basically in a situation where crypto doesn't have an adversarial scenario. They've never had to deal with an adversary. So wh why would they fix any problem? Why would anything need to be robust if all they are doing is trying to make sure that they can market just well enough to get crypto to throw money at them? No offense, but crypto throws money at fucking anything. I'm, I'm finding myself cursing a lot more in this one. I should probably put a... Um, explicit thing on this one. I try not to curse, but uh, it doesn't work out all the time. Uh, forgive me, I have a construction background. It happens. Uh, but so, so the NFT points to 
It just shows up as a shit. <laughs> it's a shit emoji in your in your MetaMask, um, which is just amazing. But I, I just could not. I was almost hard to believe when I first heard it. And maybe maybe it shouldn't be because you know this is so common in all of the stuff that's going on in that space right now. But that OpenSea was actually the source of even feeding to the wallet the fact that it exists. It's something is even there. And if all you've got on the blockchain is a token that points to a URL and it doesn't even tell you what you ought to find, that is phenomenal. That is just ridiculous that it doesn't even tell you what you should find. There's not a signature of the artist. There's not an, a, the, a hash of the actual file so that your client, if, I mean, if you, if you, at least if you had a hash of the file, your client could check the URL, see if it's the correct file by the hash. If it doesn't check out, oh shit, somebody cheated you out of an NFT. You know, you got to find the real thing. Uh, even even that would be centralized and completely trusted because you're still depending on the URL, but you at least could verify that they delivered you the right thing or not. And instead, you buy an NFT that actually looks kind of cool on Rarible and you get to your wallet and it's a shit emoji and your client has zero fucking clue. It can't authenticate anything. It cannot verify that it wasn't a shit emoji to begin with. It can't, it can't determine whether or not OpenSea lied to you or not because nobody signs anything. What is any of this? What is it? Oh, man. It's just so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. And... Obviously, there could be something. It's not going back to I didn't even finish the, the comment about the royalties thing is that there could be a value proposition. You know, this isn't even totally unlike the value for value stuff in Lightning and the idea of it's trying to solve the same problem, but it's actually just doing it with public keys, with a, with a built in payment mechanism of being able to. Uh, and I hope to be doing this very soon of like potentially having someone who could do thumbnails or graphics or whatever for each of my episodes so that they are custom. And then I just put it in that when everybody, anybody does a value for value thing and they're streaming sats, they're streaming sats to the podcast, the 5% goes to whoever did the graphic. I don't know. That seems, that's kind of like an idea of the royalties of splitting the payments without the copyright industry, without all of this convoluted mess that you could just write it into the code that this is how the payment is distributed you publish it and then that's how it runs it's removing the payment processor it's removing some you know essentially the some external contract in the sense of like a a, uh, a trusted party that's i guess you say arbitrating it or or top down putting in the structure and then you're paying them a 20 20 fee just to just have the right of making the payments and doing the publishing. Like you're taking out so much, so much of the middleman and removing the ownership, removing the need to give up the ownership in order to get any security in the operation, in the actual payment and distribution of the funds, because it's being done with lightning. It's being done with their key and your key 
from the start automatically. That's cool. That's a great way to take advantage of this. And you could do it with a token. You could do it with a lightning token. You could do it with an NFT. There's a lot of interesting ways that you could solve that problem or iterate on it to make it, uh, to make it unique to, a, to something that's just not possible in the legacy system, particularly in the legacy banking system. Um, and yet, and yet, these things are basically foregone for iterating as quick as they can to just make sure that they are the platform that gets all of the users as fast as possible by just selling nonsense under the new hype name. I, like, I cannot... No matter what I, I do, I cannot get away from the fact that it is all so empty. It's, it feels like all of it is sold under the excuse that something could be made to solve a problem, and yet the vast majority of it just doesn't have anything to do with it. And you know, Moxie's even hopeful at the end of this that there is something here, that there's maybe even just platforms to be built that could be useful. I'm not so hopeful about it, unfortunately. Um, and I know Moxie's been around for, shit, I guess, since the beginning of Bitcoin. He's been here since before Bitcoin, so he should have a, I feel like he should have at least a knowledgeable or realistic opinion uh, or view of this whole stuff. But ever since 2017, my hopes of anything happening in crypto have done nothing but steadily decline. Um, and there is, there, there I, I, I have to admit there are some things that at least few pieces of interesting tech that are being built. Um, there are some, uh, you know, like uh, uh, valid uh, valid proofs rather than fraud proofs. Some of the some of the privacy mechanisms and setups that were designed, like there is stuff being built. But what's funny is that nobody cares about that stuff. The real stuff is the least likely to go anywhere because you almost invariably can't sell the hype. And it all progresses so quickly towards centralization. Like this is why when we're talking about protocols, this is why it's move slow and don't break things. Because the more things you're breaking and the more things that need to be fixed and the more things that need to be maintained and the bigger teams you have to deal with the technical bloat, the, the technical debt, of building out this system and getting users as quick as possible means there's no way to reverse course. There's no way to correct it after you've already built so much on top of the wrong foundation. What you have to do is spend orders of magnitude, more resources and manpower, just fix it, patching every single crack that happens in the foundation, every little thing that breaks because the thing is so big and there's so many people riding on it already. It's why it feels to me like the whole thing has to implode before it really finds a grounding in anything actually useful over there. And I will leave myself open. It's part of why I make the Shitcoin Insider show. I still really want to kind of find something valuable. It's just so much seems to throw away the fundamentals throw away the one thing that Bitcoin really did that was fascinating and a breakthrough so that they can so that they can chase the next token. But the trend at this point is glaringly clear. Glaringly clear that it's just 
more and more centralized into platforms, more and more trust on Infura and Alchemy, um, uh, you know, just API calls from a wallet. And I'm glad he brought up in this piece the, oh, it's still just early. Um, and, you know, we'll fix it later. And just like the analogy of the foundation, you're, you have too much riding on it, so you can't change course. Um, I, I, I think that's completely, that's complete nonsense. Like that's what web, that's how we got web too. Oh, well, it's not secure. Oh, well, we don't actually encrypt anything. Oh, we're just trusting big centralized platforms. Well, we'll fix it later. How is it easier to fix when you have a billion users than it is when you have a hundred users? If you don't build it that way from the start, you're admitting that you're just not building it that way. That's why this is a tortoise and a hare thing. This, that's why you build slow, you build deliberately, and you stay entirely focused on the most important goal. This is the reason I am still interested in Bitcoin, because Bitcoin seems hyper-focused on that. Admittedly, a lot, there are people who get distracted. There are people who I think get overzealous and... I've even done it myself, like feeling like uh, we needed to rush to get X done or to have a decentralized this or something like that. And I, I remember I, I stop and try to reel it in like, no, we want it to work. We can use uh, even if we end up having to rely on some sort of centralized platform in order to uh, provide some sort of a service. If we can still do that with independent money, if we can do that with a lightning channel with that institution, having it such that that, that institution or that service is non-custodial because I am holding my keys and holding a lightning contract such that they cannot cheat me out of it, they cannot lock me out of the account, they cannot freeze my money, that is such an order of magnitude improvement that it's okay to take the time to build it right because you don't lose the most important piece. As soon as you've lost that piece, as soon as you were trusting someone else to define your money and you're not authenticating anything, and the fact that you hold your keys is meaningless because you don't even know what to check for your keys to be meaningful, and you're just taking an API call from Google, how are you gonna build something more decentralized on top of that? How are you gonna go back the other way? So there's a section, he says, the, oh, it's still early days. That's the first paragraph of that section. It says, it's early days still. This is the most common refrain I see from people in the Web3 space when discussing matters like these. In some ways, cryptocurrency's failure to scale beyond relatively nascent engineering is what makes it possible to consider the days early, since objectively, it has already been a decade or more. However, even if this is just the beginning, and it might very well be, I'm not sure we should consider that any consolation. I think the opposite might be true. It seems like we should take notice that from the very beginning, these technologies immediately tended towards centralization through platforms in order for them to be realized, that this has roughly zero negatively felt effect on the velocity of the ecosystem, and that most participants don't even know or care that it's happening. Absolutely. The, so, if it is centralized at the beginning, if the trend from day one to week one 
to month two to year two is just more and more centralized, more and more platform-based, build out as fast as we can uh, by trusting OpenSea or trusting Infura instead of running nodes. If that is the direction now, then it's done. That's not, it's early days is not a reason to think it's going to get any better. It's a reason to think it's only going to get progressively and possibly exponentially worse. Because if you can't do it at the beginning, you're certainly not going to be able to do it later. That's like, it's like cheating at the beginning of a relationship and then thinking you're going to be loyal later. Oh, I'll clean up my act later. I'll stop doing drugs later. I'll stop making this trade-off that I'm getting some incredible short-term high or super high preference benefit from, and I'm going to train myself to get used to that high preference uh, a payoff and reward, and then I'm going to decide that at some future date, my future self will make this, will actually pay the price, will actually make this trade-off and suddenly become a better person, but right now that's not in the cards, when really what you're doing is you're training yourself to never be able to make that, make that trade-off, to be able to make that cost. Anyway, um, there's still, there's just a, a lot to unpack with this in this whole, this whole ecosystem, the whole crypto thing. Um, and, uh, I think it's funny to basically hit this topic in response or in, in following up with the conversation with John Carvalho and thinking about if you have a strong foundation, if you actually have a decentralized independent money, what you can build with it, how you can extend that cryptography to services, to uh, uh, monetary contracts and deals that can be set up and you can use those keys for, you know, we have, we have a public-private key system where everybody who holds Bitcoin themselves has a set of private keys and now we have hardware wallets. Like we've brought so much to this market. It was essentially the dream of cypherpunks, of, uh, you know, uh, Douglas Backham, when we had him on the show, uh, he's the, I think he's the CEO, I think that was right, um, it does the Bitbox thing, um, a brilliant guy, engineer, and he was talking about how uh, one of the things we brought up on the show, like in the chat, which I just thought was so fascinating to me, was that we have an ecosystem where... Um, you know, HSMs, like uh, hardware security modules that CEOs of companies and like big corporations and all these things, this is how they would use to secure their operations on a computer and to make sure that they're private and, you know, keep uh, trade secrets and all these things, is that we've essentially created a market, like the beauty of Bitcoin and, and crypto was that we have a way to, we've put public-private key pairs into the hands of so many users and the extraordinary value it is to be able to do that, to make someone incentivized to care about exactly that sort of thing. And that we actually have hardware wallets. Um, the, the quote that made me think of it or that um, I wanted to bring up was that Douglas Backham was talking about his friend, uh, someone he knew, an engineer who works in the HSM industry, the hardware security module, uh, module industry in the kind of corporate environment before Bitcoin and everything did hardware wallets and we got the Bitbox and the cold card and the Trezor and the Ledger and the, the passport and the Keystone, whatever it is. You know, we've got so many of these freaking devices now. 
is that, and, and he literally said, you know, I've been in this for a long time and I, I genuinely think that the, the hardware devices being built for the consumer, not for some high-end, super rich corporate dude, but for the end consumer at $50, $100 a pop are actually superior to the products that were built for this super high class CEO only sort of market. That's a breakthrough. That is something that was real and is fascinating and that we can, le uh, we can actually leverage. And something like slash tags, the ability to create you know, identities on the fly to, to let ourselves build up a reputation in a decentralized fashion that doesn't require some extensive new blockchain or some giant public ledger with consensus because we don't need consensus on that. We just need to be able to protect it ourselves. What we need consensus on is money. What we need consensus on are the rules of, uh, you know, that's what a consensus mechanism is, right? It's, it's laying out the foundation, the rules for how we interact so that we can then be individuals within that sense, so that we can then expand and develop a market. That, that's what I talk about a lot. Um, I've mentioned before in the context of economics and like libertarian history and stuff is that a market can't exist before you establish the rules of the market. And before you have a common um, sort of uh, customs, I guess maybe is the sense. It, it's, it's rules. It is literally rules. What are the common expectations and means of making an exchange? Only then can you start to build out a free market on top of it. Uh, in much the same way that culture doesn't, can't really get a grounding. You can't like communicate and exchange culture and quote-unquote trade culture without language, without, uh, without the foundations that make that sort of communication possible. You have to first address what means what and how to speak in order for that uh, communication to actually take place. And there's so much potential if we can take advantage of this, but we have to actually care about what we're building. We actually have to care about the results and not just uh, chase money, not just chase whatever hype term, whatever nonsense jargon that seems to be pulling in the most money at any one time because we're just wasting resources on a short-term fling, on a fling for new nerdy technology bullshit that's just going to die out and be replaced with the next thing and we'll find out that, oh, maybe we even made a ton of money. Maybe even, uh, you know, tons of developers stayed in jobs and we paid a bunch of artists and stuff, but we've got nothing that lasted. We've got, it's nihilism. American Huddle said it, you know, it's nihilism. It's just whatever. Everything sucks. Let's just get some dollars. And if there was anything in this piece that summed up really what my view generally is of crypto, and I want to be proven wrong one day. I want to wake up and find out that it's not this anymore. But quote, uh, just take out NFTs. But that's, this, that's obviously the context that he's talking about this in. Quote, the people at the end of the line who are flipping NFTs do not fundamentally care about distributed trust models or payment mechanics, but they care about where the money is. Every time I 
through some honest digging, that's what I feel like. That's where I feel like I end up is that it's just chasing money. And the idea of, oh, this is more distributed than yours, or this is more decentralized, or the smart contract is better, is purely in the context of it's you should buy my shit coin. <laughs> that mine's worth more. Mine's going to replace you because I've got, we've got much better virtue signaling over here. We got so much, oh my God, we've got like, whole buckets of decentralization and you're screwed because ours is so much better and look how great our you know shit emoji nft is and i don't know it just seems it seems like such a waste um and ah you know people waste money and time and on all sorts of stuff and it's inevitable that there's going to be mountains and mountains of it. We're going to get stuff wrong a million times before we get it right, and it only matters that we get it right once and that that sticks. Um, but And maybe that's just, that's just what Bitcoin is, and that's the inevitability of the vast majority of the crypto system is when something started to work, of course it was going to turn into this. Of course it was going to be drowned by VCs who had no idea what the fuck they were doing, had no idea about any of this technology but it sounded good and people were making money, so here they come. And they know how to do the marketing. They know how to raise money. And when one thing with X term, when one blockchain is doing good, well, man, I got you a better blockchain. My blockchain is bigger. My blockchain is faster. Look at the sheen on my blockchain. And so that's where we are, right? And how were we really going to avoid that? But still, it just seems just a little bit depressing, just a little bit like, Jesus, couldn't we have avoided this? Maybe? Some way? I don't know. But, yeah, so, that's some NFTs. I can't believe they were worse than I thought. I can't believe that they don't even have, like, a hash or an artist's signature. Like, that's stupid. It just is, with all due respect. Um, that's absurd. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just stop that there. We're done. We're done. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, uh, I hope you guys, uh, enjoyed this episode, this read from Moxie Marlin Spike. Uh, I'll have his, uh, Twitter in the show notes so you can follow him. Um, uh, you know, maybe if he, uh, if he actually realizes what the space is and he actually, you know, come back to Bitcoin, man. Um, we'd love to have you. We'd love to have that mentality and realizing what is worth i want you, i want to see you pick apart some bitcoin and lightning projects that you know are less than they appear to be or that aren't actually solving a problem uh like we need criticism we need that um and i want to i want us to be building stuff that's worthwhile that makes sense and i don't want us to go in this blindly thinking that everybody's going to run a server when he's got a good point people aren't so how do we mitigate trust? How do we create sovereignty? And how do we lean on what we can get people to do? What does work? And how do we keep Bitcoin secure and independent as, and as decentralized and distributed as completely humanly possible? Whatever we can do um, by recognizing those realities and taking them into account. Not burying our heads in the sand throwing out a bunch of hype words and then just hoping that it works out 
in the mix after we make millions and millions of dollars because that's all that really matters. So with that, stay focused. Don't, uh, don't let yourself believe something that isn't true, uh, particularly if it's an uncomfortable truth. Uh, like those, the two points that he made at the bottom, you know, people don't want to run servers. How do we address with that? How, how do we deal with that truth and build the most secure thing uh, that we can on top of it? And uh, I also like the second point too that I didn't really touch on, but that we should reduce the burden of building software. Um, and uh, that's an interesting point. It's probably something to maybe explore at a different date. Um, maybe Moxie will have some other things uh, written on that topic, but it'll have to be it'll have to be saved for another episode of Bitcoin Audible. Um, a huge thank you to our amazing sponsors. We got Bitbox, um, Bitbox Hardware Wallet. Hold your own damn keys, guys. Um, sovereignty is where it's at. Then we got the Fold app and the Fold debit card. Man, I've got so many spins. I'm loving it. Bitcoin 2022 conference. Uh, so stoked. I hope I get to see you guys there. And of course, Swan Bitcoin, the best place to buy, to stack automatically, automatic withdrawal. Swan is where it's at. Check out all of them. We got links, dis discounts, goodies, uh, so much great stuff in the show notes. Don't forget to check it out. Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. I'm Guy Swan. This is is the motherfucker Bitcoin Audible. And until next time, everybody, take it easy. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.